What is up, everybody? This is the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by Discipleship.org, and I'm your host, Dave Stovall. We're currently working our way through the track sessions from 2022 National Disciple Making Forum, which just happened, and it was fantastic, if I say so myself. I hope that you were there, and if you missed it, that is okay, because we've got a digital access pass coming at you soon. Make sure to stay tuned at Discipleship.org for when that releases. Today's episode features Better Man's track session number three from the forum. For the past few episodes, Chris Harper has been talking to us about the major impact it has when we focus our efforts towards reaching men for Christ and teaching them to be godly leaders in their homes and social contexts and how much that trickles down and shapes and changes the culture in which we live in. Pretty powerful stuff. Let's go ahead and jump in and hear from Better Man's third track session from the forum. Here we go. Hey, hey, great to see everybody again. Um, I promise you in the last session we will get more practical. We're still in the theoretical. I want to address two or three things. Um, Anytime we speak on subjects like manhood, masculinity, Anytime you hold to a to a lens, so I will tell you, our organization, Better Man, is strongly complementarian. So we we read scripture um, uh, because we believe scripture is is slanted and and leans toward a complementarian view that men and women complement one another versus an egalitarian view where men and women are equal in everything, not just grace and mercy, but roles as well. So we are a complementarian organization. So anytime you, you have that as your background, there's going to be, um, sometimes there's pushback, sometimes there can even be confusion, and sometimes there's just flat-out anger. Uh, and I love that no one's been angry, but I have been challenged on a couple of things, which I, which I thoroughly enjoy. Um, so, so I learned from Dr. Albert Moeller, right? So, And if you've been here for the last two or three sessions, you're starting to see some of my... Um, my theological bend and my theological dispensation. I have a son named Calvin John. That gives away a lot, right? So, so um, um, you'll start to see some of that. Um, but I learned from Dr. Moeller years ago that anytime you're engaging in theological context, topics, etc., you need to practice theological triage. If you are a nurse or a doctor, you know that when you look at triage, if, if I come in with a heart attack and my brother comes in with a broken arm, um, they see the man that's having the heart attack first because he needs to be addressed, and we can get to the broken arm in a little bit. Um, it's the same thing theologically. There are first-level issues that if you and I are going to disagree on, there is a problem. Like, we can't both be believing, like we don't get to we don't get to agree to disagree. Like we have to stay in the room and wrestle this because eternal salvation may be on the line, and we have got to talk through that. A lot of orthodoxy, historical Christianity would fall into that category. Things like the uh, supremacy of Christ, the Trinity, the um, sinlessness of Christ, things of that nature. Things that really and truly affect the gospel. Those are first level issues. Second level issues are going to be things that we can disagree on. We can both still be believing. We're probably just not going to go to the same church. And those are second level issues, right? Um, I don't get behind infant baptism. Um, When I say that, I don't mean that R.C. Sproul is going to hell. As a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul, one of my mentors, someone I greatly look up to, and he gets behind infant baptism. I don't go to R.C. Sproul and say, bro, you're wrong, I'm right. I get into the scripture and I think to myself, what is R.C. Sproul seeing that I don't see because he's infinitely smarter than me? Infinitely smarter than me. I remember at DTS, um, DTS, it's interesting. So I'm a theological mutt. The first theological class I ever had was taught by a priest at a Catholic university. So I have a degree from there. I have a degree from DTS. Uh, I did my doctoral studies at Southwestern. I've went to Harvard. Like I'm a theological mutt. I remember being at DTS. I'm sitting in a soteriology class and we're talking about the salius 
uh, Ordus, the order of salvation. And, and of course, I'm, I'm hardcore reformed. I'm a Calvinist. So we get to that point where what comes first, right? Um, faith, right? Faith or, you know what I'm talking about? The Arminian Calvinist divide. I don't want to go too theological, but, but what happens first? And is it, is it faith or is it, is it repentance? Now, some people, if you're in one theological camp, you say, well, repentance and confession comes first, and then you're, then you're born again. It centers around regeneration. People in a different theological camp say, well, you're dead, and you have to be brought to life. So when you're brought to life, then you can exercise repentance and faith, right? It just depends on where you land. DTS doesn't take a position. DTS says it's a flashbang experience. It happens at the same time. And I was the first to raise my hand with President Mark Bailey, and I said, Dr. Bailey, I disagree. I said, R.C. Sproul's says dead things can't bring themselves to life and mark sproul go and and, and um dr bailey goes blah 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 chris i was just having breakfast with rc sproul last week <laughs> arguing this and i thought to myself this man has breakfast with rc sproul i only read him i'm just going to stop talking <laughs> stop. <laughs> there are second level issues second level things right that, that we can disagree on, we can still believe, we're just probably not going to go to the same church. I will tell you, women pastors and women elders tend to be in that second level category. I know some phenomenal women pastors and women elders. I will tell you, I do not attend a church with a woman pastor or a woman elder. But when I say that, I don't mean that all women pastors and women elders are going to hell. It's a second level issue that I'm going to disagree on, that I'm going to think, I'm going to, I'm going to look to Scripture and tell you Scripture speaks to that, but I'm not, going to, I'm not going to condemn. I'm not going to condemn that. It's a second level issue. I believe baptism is full submersion. I don't get down with the sprinkle stuff, but hey, man, if you got sprinkled, you believing in King Jesus, you going to heaven. It's a second level issue. I'm probably just not going to attend to that church. Are you guys following with that? And then third level issues are everything else. Bro, we want to argue two raptures, one rapture, pre-mill, all-mill, post-mill, fancy words. We can do that all day and we can go to the same church. I will tell you the majority of conflict in the church is when we take that third level, those third level issues, and we elevate them to second and first level issues. So I've had some questions over the last couple of sessions just about that. I had a question in the last session when I talk about the feminization of the church and how we need to defeminize the church. A man came to me and said, well, how do we do that? My church, my, my pastor is a woman. I said, well, then you probably can't do that. I said, that's like, that's like wanting to learn how to fly a plane and asking someone who, drive, who drives trains to teach you. Those are two different vehicles, right? I can't learn how to be a man from a woman. Just can't. Now, I grew up in a home where what I learned a lot about life and being a man, unfortunately, was saddled to my mother. And praise be to God, my mom was in my home. Praise be to God, I had a mom that pointed me to King Jesus. Praise be to God, I had a mom that taught me about virtues and taught me about the Bible and taught me about God's kingdom. But what I missed out on was a man in my home doing that. So even though my mom did it, it doesn't make it best. And it doesn't make it a part of God's design. Anytime we go outside of God's design, there is going to be conflict and there's going to be trouble. Now, my mom wasn't in sin teaching me the Bible. She did what she knew to do, and praise God, she did it. I am where I am today because of my mother. I wish my dad would have taught me the Bible. And I tell people all the time, the fact my dad didn't teach me the Bible, it didn't kill me. But I tell you, I walk with a little limp today. I walk with a limp. Anytime we go outside of that order, there's going to be problems. So let's talk about, let's just talk about theology for a minute. Men today, when we, when we talk about men and what they're learning, um, we know they're biblically illiterate. 
more so they're even theologically illiterate. I gave you that theological primer because some of the stuff I, I will read, maybe you agree or, or, or disagree with. I just want to show you where evangelicals in the West are. So, so these, these are some theological statements. I'm going to make some theological statements. I'm going to tell you where the latest survey, the state of theology, where the church is today, right now. As a matter of fact, this is less than a month old. The question was asked, does God change? And this is the statement that was put forward. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Okay, so God is always learning and he's, he's adapting to different circumstances. 51% of people agree with that statement. I will tell you that in theological circles, this is called open theism. It's this idea that God doesn't necessarily know the future so that what we do now and how we respond to God now affects the future. There is a main proponent on this that has written a lot of men's books. And because I, because I figured out this is going to be recorded, I'm just going to leave it at that. But he is an open theist. You need to know that. You need to understand that. 51% of people, this is evangelical people, believe that God changes. Now, in contrast to Scripture, I read about a God that has no shadow, no variations, that was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So you have to, again, weigh that. Another thing that is, that is really, just, really just standing out, and this is going to divide some people in the room, so I'm just going to go ahead and primer you with that. The question was, are we born innocent? Are we born innocent? So the statement that was made is everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 71% of people agree with that. This comes down to a big theological issue, a big theological debate, uh, a debate about the, the, the origin of sin and the originality of sin. And do we inherit Adam's sin or Adam's guilt and things of that nature? But the majority of people today inside the church believe that everyone is just born innocent. Now, depending on your theological background, you would find that you may find that extremely problematic. And I have, two, I have two children. I have two small children. I can tell you there is nothing innocent about them. <laughs> Christmas a couple of years ago, my two-year-old, my three-year-old, my three-year-old daughter gets a, gets a doll. My two-year-old son gets a train. Christmas afternoon, my son starts playing with the doll, and my, my daughter sees it. My daughter sees my two-year-old son playing playing with her doll, so she gets mad and she smashes his train on Christmas Day. And I looked and I said, you had to have learned that from your mother. <laughs> no, but the reality is she didn't have to learn that, right? Sure. I didn't teach her that to smash people's trains when she doesn't get her way. I don't know, I don't know of anyone who has had children that walks away and says that we're born innocent. But I could be wrong. The question was asked, does church membership matter? Does church membership matter? This was the statement. Every Christian has an obligation to join a local church. 56% of people disagree with that. That we have no obligation to, to join or to be a part of a local congregation. Just want to throw that out there. Talking about the Bible, the statement was made, the Bible, like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but it is not literally true. 53% of evangelicals agree with this statement. That the Bible is not literally true. In 2014, it was 41%. In eight years, it has grown to 53%. The statement was made about gender. Gender identity is a matter of choice. Is a matter of choice. 42% of people agree that God does not assign gender, but gender identity is a matter of choice. And this really comes down to a philosophical view of the human body. 
And there are only two philosophical and really theological views of the human body. The first view is the human body is a Lego kit. And like Lego's famous saying, you're only limited by your imagination. So you can construct and destruct. You can add pieces and take away pieces. That's one way that culture frames the view of the human body. It's a Lego kit. I'm kind of the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, right? Oh, Timothy McVeigh, remember him? Blew up the Oklahoma City building right before they lethally injected him. They said, do you have any last words? And he quoted Invictus. My head's unbowed, captain of my fate, the master of my soul. Wonder how that worked out for him. Right, so this is this, this Lego kit idea versus a, a different view of the human body is what we call the art restorative process. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's handiwork. The Greek there is poema that you are literally God's poem, you are God's masterpiece. That masterpiece has been ruined, it's been marred by sin. So like a Picasso that you find in your great-grandfather's basement, you don't take that Picasso and try to make it a new painting, you take that Picasso and you pay somebody to restore it back to what it was. So this human body of ours, it's been flawed. And through this redemption process, God is taking this work of art that he calls Chris Harper. And he's saying, Chris Harper, I'm bringing you back. Taking you back to what I created you to be. Those are two different ways to view the human body. Really the only two. You're either a Lego kit or you're a piece of art being restored. Got to wrestle with that. Your people are wrestling with that. 42% of people agree that the body's really a Lego kit. Statement 28, the Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior does not apply today. 46 people, 46% of people agree with that trend. Statement. This is the one, this is the one that is most concerning for me. God, this is the statement that was made. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of people agree. Another statement that was made, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. They're saying he was not God. This would be a first level issue, attacking the divinity of Christ, a Trinitarian issue. 40 3% of people in your churches agree that Jesus was a great teacher. He just wasn't God. Another statement that was made, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not about an objective truth. 38% of people agree with that. This is interesting. Listen to this. Sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin. 94% of people agree with that. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. All that to say, all that to say, we have a theological disconnect. We have a theological lapse in our church. The very place, the very place that, that men, really all believers, should be trained up, should be learning, should be getting um, their, their theological mooring, it's not happening. So not only are, are men disappearing from university, not only are, are, are men disappearing from the workforce, now men are are biblically illiterate. They're, they're theologically unsound. So let's talk about that. What can, we, what can we do about that? Not everyone is blessed, nor not everyone needs to go to seminary. But as R.C. Sproul said, we are all theologians. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Theology, theosology, the knowledge of God. If you profess to follow King Jesus, if you profess to be an adopted son or daughter of God, you are a theologian. Are you a good one or are you a bad one? This is going to get practical. Let's talk about the way and the place that men best learn in. If I'm going to teach men theology, um, um, I would want to know this, okay? Here's the first thing. How adults learn is different from how kids learn. How adults learn, it's different from how kids learn. But here, here's what we typically do. We typically teach 
the same way we were taught. And since most of us, since most of us received teaching when we were children, we teach as if everyone is a child. Thus, we don't teach in the best way for adults to learn. In 1980, Malcolm Knowles, he popularized the concept of andragogy. Andragogy, it is the science behind how adults learn versus pedagogy, which is how children best learn. Most of our teaching methods in the church, not only are they aimed at women and how women best learn, but they're also aimed at children and how children best learn. The problem is a man is neither a woman or a child. When we are teaching men, when we are thinking about andragogy, this is what we need to think about. Men, when they are learning, they need to know why they should learn something. If you are doing a men's study or inviting men into a space to learn, if you are not leading with why they should be there, you are already losing. You don't have to tell a child why they should be there. Often, you don't have to tell a woman why she should come to this Bible study. They typically just show up. If you want to win and engage the men theologically, they need to know the why they should be there. This is reverse engineering. This is what I did with Better Man. Better Man wanted to adopt an SEO strategy, right? The board at Better Man was mad because every time you, you Googled men's ministry or men's curriculum, Better Man wasn't at the top of the list. They said, let's spend thousands, tens of thousands of dollars and let's strengthen our SEO strategy. I said, that's a terrible idea. They said, what do you mean? I said, I don't care if people, if people Google best men's ministry, we're at the top of the list. I said, you know what, the top, you know what list I want to be top of? How do you fight pornography? Put better men at the top of that list. I'm divorcing my wife. Google that and I want better men to come up at the top of the list. Like we reverse engineered it. So we, we created an entire SEO plan. Forget Googling men's ministries. Man, you're, how do I stop abusing my wife? I want that to come up at the top of the list. It's the same way for men. Tell them why they should come to this lesson. Tell them that by learning about this, by learning about manhood and masculinity, by learning theology, you're going to mitigate future hope. You're going to have a divorce 10 years from now that you're not going to have to experience because you're equipping yourself today. You know why you should come to this? Because your children need you. Young man, you know why you should come to this? Because your future wife needs you. You know why? Give them a why. Give them a reason. Start with that. Secondly, Men need internal motivation. They need it. Again, children do not need internal motivation. If I want to get my kid to do anything, all I've got to do is promise them an ice cream cone. Here's the problem. A lot of your men's ministries, that's what you do. You promise a free ice cream cone. And you wonder why the men aren't motivated. It's because men don't respond to external motivation. They respond to internal motivation. Internal. And I'll tell you the number one, the number one internal response for men, how you get men to respond is through competition. Men will respond through competition. It's the number one thing. It's been like that. It's the reason why we have the Olympic Games. There's an internal mechanism inside men to be competitive. And, and we're living in a culture that has erased any notion of competition. Come on. Everybody gets a trophy. And the church is the same way. And the reality is not every, I got a couple years ago, my, a good friend of mine is a superintendent of a large school district. They had about two, 3,000 seniors graduating from the school district. And he said, Chris, I want you to come talk to the senior class. He said, you're a public school, man, so you can't go right into the gospel. He said, but do what you do and backdoor that thing. I said, bro, I got you. <laughs> so I show up at this, at, 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 this big, at this big ceremony, 
and, and my friend, bro, he always doing this. He didn't tell me. I show up and there's black Escalades all out in front of the school. He didn't tell me the governor was speaking before me. So the governor's in there doing their governor thing, right? Man, I'm the governor and I grew up in a small town. I overcome this, I overcome that. Man, you work hard, you do good things. Like, you be governor. How many wants to be governor? And like all 3,000 hands go up. I want to be governor. That's great, man. Do, work hard, be good, do this, overcome, right? I kid you not, within three minutes I was on the stage and I literally opened with this. I said, how many of you all want to be governor? All 3,000 hands went up. I said, well, only, I said, unfortunately, only one of you can be. So let's talk about disappointment. Let's talk about disappointment. Here's the reality. God doesn't give gifts and talents equally. He doesn't. The problem is most of us are four, five, six talent men thinking we're nine and ten talent men. And then we're telling our kids and younger men that you're a nine, ten talent kid. When the reality is not, man, you're a four, five, six talent kid. Teach them to be faithful with the talents God has given them. There is nothing wrong with that. I have children. I have four children. I have one that is predisposed to become a doctor. I have no doubt she will. I have another that is predisposed to become an HVAC technician. I have no doubt he will. I love them both the same. They are both made in the image of God, and they will both do things to the glory of God, and they are both deserving of my love. I don't differentiate that. But we live in a time, we live in a time where we just say everything's equal. Be whatever you want to be. The reality is that's not the case. That's not the case. I'm not, a, I'm not John Piper. I'm not a ten-talent preacher. I'm a six-talent, and I want to work those six talents, man. So when I stand before God, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you know anything about the parable, he tells both workers the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't tell the one with ten talents, well, well done. He tells them the same thing. The only one he scolds is the one that hides it. Man, we need to start reinforcing that and teaching that. Not everybody gets a trophy. Well, y'all got me on a rabbit hole on that. (laughs) Goodness gracious. Who all wants to be governor? Everybody. That's stupid. You can't. Men, thirdly, men want to know how learning will help them specifically. They need to know how learning will help them specifically. You need to state, whether you're launching a study, whether you're launching a book of the Bible, whatever it is, you need to state specifically how this will help you. And they will respond to that. Fourthly, men bring prior knowledge and experience that formed a foundation for their learning, they bring that to the table. They're bringing that to the table. Children don't bring that to the table. All five-year-olds eat crayons. Like there's nothing special about a five-year-old. I used to tell families all the time, Stanford is dealing with this right now. Parents, Working at a, so I worked, I served as a president of a college prep school, a Christian college prep school. And I would tell our faculty and staff all the time, every day we deal with people's two greatest idols, their children and their money. So there's going to be conflict. And that's true in my life. My two greatest idols, my kids and my money. So there's going to be conflict. I used to tell parents all the time, if your kid is a national merit scholar, it is nothing that we did. It's because God has blessed them and gave them the capacity. They would be a National Merit Scholar here. They would be a National Merit Scholar there. God has blessed them. They said, oh, that's so good. Yes, yes, Mr. Harper, that's so good. That's right. I said, well, then the inverse is true. When your kid is not a National Merit Scholar, it ain't my fault. (laughs) You have to accept both. You have to accept both. People bring dispositions, certain dispositions to the table. People have natural, natural giftings and experiences. I heard, I heard a pastor one time in a church. I wanted to get up and shout in this church. This pastor, this five foot ten, skinny white guy, did not look athletic. He was, he was preaching through Amos and he was, he told a story about how in high school he was a good basketball player. He wanted to be division one, but he didn't go division one. He didn't go division two. He didn't go D3. He didn't even go NAIA. He got no offers. 
And he said, for years, I held a grudge against my high school coach. My high school coach didn't do enough for me, man. My, my family really didn't like him. It was just bad. He said, but when I turned 28, I went to a bachelor party at Oklahoma State University. And he says, a part of the bachelor party, we got to play basketball in the gym. He said, during that time, the OSU basketball team came into the gym. And he said, I saw for the first time what a Division I basketball team looks like. And then he said something that crushed me. He said, in that moment, I realized it wasn't my coach's fault. It was my fault. I didn't work hard enough. And I wanted to stand up and say, bro, you could have got up a thousand shots a day. You're not playing for OSU. God didn't gift you like that. He just didn't. No matter how hard you work. LeBron James is a LeBron James because, yes, he worked hard, but also because God reached down and touched that man. <laughs> so I'm not saying throw out the hard work. I'm not saying that. But the reality is we bring different experiences to the table. I remember being a, a junior in high school, a junior playing on an all-star, state all-star traveling team. I remember being told, you have to guard this freshman out of Louisville, Kentucky today. Freshman, I said, no problem. I'm 17, he's a freshman. I said, what's his name? They said, his name is Rajon Rondo. <laughs> I said, I don't, I don't even know who that is. Don't even matter. I, lock up, coach. I got him. We lost that game 138 to 22. <laughs> I remember going home and looking at my mom and dad and saying, hey, like, I'm not going to play in the NBA. She said, well, my mom said, wow, how do you know that? I've seen NBA talent. I ain't it. I got to figure another way to go to college. I went to college on an ROTC scholarship. <laughs> I had to figure out another way to get there. We all bring different experiences, different levels, different talents to the table, different baggage. We bring different baggage to the table. As we think about engaging men, we just need to be aware of that. Fifthly, we need, know, we need to know that men are self-directed and they want to take charge of their learning. Children are not self-directed. And again, nothing against women, but by, by and large, women don't tend to be self-directed. Men are hyper self-directed and they want to take charge of their learning. Meaning that if you're not inviting men into the learning process and giving them some responsibility, you're going to lose them. People tell me all the time, Chris, how come I start a men's study by, by week three, half the people aren't there? And I asked, did you give them ownership of the learning, of the teaching, of the study? No, there's your answer. Men love to take charge and be a part of it. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today. Lastly, men find the most relevance from task-oriented learning that aligns with their own reality that aligns with their own reality. And this oftentimes plays itself out in lots of hands-on experiences, lots of instruction, things like Socratic seminar, etc. What does this mean for you? This is what it means from you. It means what we're doing right now is not best. We need to move ourselves. We need to, we need to move from being a sage to a guide. Instead of being a sage on a stage, we need to be guides on the side. Instead of being sages on a stage, we need to be guides on a side. We need to what I call invert the classroom. 
I'm going to tell you how men are going to best learn over the next 20 years. It's not going to be through an hour-long lecture. It's not going to be men sitting in rows and taking notes. If you want to best teach men the Bible and theology over the next 20 years, here's what you should do. You should record 10-minute lessons of yourself. 10 minutes. 90% of all media today is consumed. 90% of all media consumed today is less than one minute. Less than one minute. Right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm not here to argue the merits and the value of that. I'm just telling you what it is. I'm telling you what your men are experiencing and what they're going to be experiencing the next 20 years. 90% of all media consumed today is less than one minute long. One minute bites. If you want to teach your men the Bible, teach your men good theology, what I would do is I would record myself in 10-minute snippets. I would send it to the men. I would say, watch this, and when you come in tomorrow, we're going to talk about it. I would say, watch this, and when we gather tomorrow, whether it's small group, large group, we're going to talk about the practicality of it, and we're going to talk about the application of what you just watched. And then for the rest of the week, I would just follow up with two, three, four, five-minute snippets. That's how men are best learning moving into the future. The days of this are done. It's just done. And you say, well, Chris, that's a terrible, that's a terrible thing. I don't know if it's terrible. We don't know. What we do know is this right here is not appealing to men. <laughs> and it's not super engaging unless you're somehow seminarian or theologically inclined or like you're weird and you love this stuff like me. Like find me a man, a theological man who's smarter than me and I will sit at his feet for hours. Right? But that's not most men. So we have to start somewhere. Give them a diet. Give them 10, 15-minute videos. It can be you. It can be you teaching. It could be on a cell phone. Do you know how many times during the week I'm recording something on a cell phone, something theologically profound, and then I'm just sending that to a group of men I'm walking with and saying, hey, man, watch this and let's talk about it. Do you know how many theological conversations I have over text messaging, which is just a pain in the rear? But that's, how, that's 90% of communication today. Like if you're still emailing people like you're missing the boat, that text is the preferred method of communication. And it's hard to have theological discourse over text. And it's annoying. But I'll engage in that if that's what it takes. If that's what it takes to move the needle. And here's the deal. They don't stay on a steady diet of 10-minute videos. We work them up. We work them up into deeper theology. We work them up into 30-minute sermons and 45-minute sermons. Hey, I go to a church, belong to a church, well, used to, belong to a church where there was an hour and five-minute sermon every Sunday, and I absolutely loved it. But I had to build a diet for that. I had to build a diet for that. And here's where you're starting. The majority of men that you're engaging with, they are biblically illiterate and they are not theologically sound. So we have to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere. Don't drown them, man. Don't throw them into the deep end and say to yourself, whichever ones swim, those are the ones we take and the ones we drown, we'll just leave out by the side. That's not the way to do it. Meet them where they're at. Engage with them. Start small and then grow, grow big. Thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about any of that today? Before we jump into spaces. I just wonder that survey, those questions you read, was that just one survey and the, the, the group surveyed was the same group for every question? It was, yes. Yeah. So it's called the State of Theology and Ligonier's Ministry produces it every year. That's right. The State of Theology, they produce it every year. Ligonier Ministry. Yep. And they even define what is evangelical. So they'll even define, we go to church 2.2 times a month, et cetera, et cetera. They define all that. And then the entire thing is just mind-blowing. I, I read like seven points. It's a, it's a big survey. There's probably 30 or 40 points. The whole thing is mind-blowing. Just showing us where we are today in the state of church and theology. Yeah, great question. State of theology. Yeah, is the name of the study. What was your last point? You said men... Find most relevant from where they align with their realities. Aligns with their reality. 
And of course, that takes relational connectivity, right? You don't just guess someone's reality. Like you have to know that person. The men I work with, I don't just assume they all come from two-parent, middle-class, affluent homes. But I get to know them, and I, and, and I, I get to understand their difficulties, um, their shortcomings, things of that nature. I do that long before I, I, I begin to, to triage and to begin to offer medicine or remedies. Right? You have to diagnose problems. You have to diagnose problems. One of the things the church has missed today is we've skipped the diagnostic phase. And we just go right into the healing, or we just go right into offering, um, offering a uh, you know medicine. When the reality is, we're treating the wrong diseases. We treat symptoms. We're treating the wrong diseases. I had a I had a man um, ask me in the last service. He said he he he, he talked about uh, about women pastors, right? I I had somebody ask me if what do you feel about women elders, and I, I said I said listen, man, if you've got women elders in your church, that's great. If you're telling me there's not a single man in your church that can serve as an elder, yeah, use women elders. Throughout the Bible, if there's not a man to lead, God will raise up a woman. For sure. I said, but the bigger problem isn't women elders. It's why don't you have any men that will lead? Like that's the disease. The, dis the, the disease isn't a woman elder. But we want to treat that. And we want to talk about that. And we want to argue about that. The question is, you have, you have z you're telling me you have zero men in your church that can step into a leadership role? If that's the case, what are we doing? What do, I mean, what are we doing? That's a big problem when we run out of male leadership, which, by the way, is where we're at culturally and in our churches. We're running out of male leadership. Let's talk about spaces real quick. Spaces. There are four types of spaces in every church. There is a public space. I'll define these in a minute. There's a public space. There's a social space, there's a personal space, and there's an intimate space. Public, social, personal, and intimate. Each of these spaces function differently. Okay? You can probably guess what the public space entails. Anybody want to guess what that is? The worship service. The worship service. That's the public space. Personal spaces would be what we defined as small groups or whatever new nomenclature they're using today. Intimate spaces is what we would define on one-to-one -one or one-to-two discipleship. Let me tell you what most churches neglect. Most churches neglect the one I haven't talked about, social spaces. Daniel Imes, in his book, No Silver Bullet, calls these spaces mid-sized communities. I will tell you, men feel most comfortable in those social spaces, in those mid-sized communities. And here's what typically, here's what a church does. A church gets everybody coming to the public space, and the expectation is they jump into the personal space, and they can't figure out why nobody makes the jump, particularly why men won't make the jump. It's because we need a space in between. We need a space in between. If there's just one more space for them to step into and cultivate, you see a greater increase and in then into that personal space and then into that intimate space, which is the hardest space to get men into. But because we've neglected the social space, We've, we've missed on transitioning men from the worship service into, again, whatever nomenclature is used today, authentic community or whatever we want to call it. So we need to be intentional about these social spaces. I will tell you a mid-sized community as defined by IMS is somewhere between 30 and 50 people that a man feels comfortable in this space. What will typically happen? You bring 30 people into a room, six will gather here, six will gather here, 
10 will gather here and that's okay because they're finding their tribe. They're finding a community. And if you just let that develop, what you'll see is that will turn into personal spaces with your guiding and with your shepherding. So my encouragement to you is don't neglect the public space. We need that, obviously. Certainly don't neglect the personal and intimate spaces. But if you're not creating these social spaces, let's do that. They need to be consistent. And again, it's not a once a year men's breakfast. It's not a once a year wild game feed. It's not a once a year car show. But it's the routine social space to bring men together to start to develop community and relationships, which again, men don't do naturally. They just don't. So we create the space to do it. No man is forming a relationship in your worship service. There's not. And rightly so. We don't, we, don't, we don't provide time for that. Like the turn around and greet and shake one another's hand is not a, is not a social thing. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost an arbitrary thing that we do. Like a traditional thing that we do. We've got to get them from the public space into the personal space, and we do that by utilizing social spaces. Any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns before we wrap up and go to lunch? You said you were a six. Speaker, I think you were seven. Oh, well, come on, man. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. I like that affirmation. I 7.5, but I want him to have the glory. That's good. That's, I like that. I like that. Thanks for that, brother. Yeah. Thank you for everything that you shared. I want to I definitely need to talk to you some more afterwards. Yeah. Because I agree with you. It's, just, it's very rough. Um, if I didn't, if I didn't have someone pour into me, uh, I had a father. Yeah. I think just even in the church, older men pour into me, uh, my nature should just be kind of recluse to my own thing, go to work, you know, sure. do my own thing, yep. a wife, kids, and I'm happy. Right? Yeah. Um, so I definitely look forward to, cause you, you walked us through a couple of things on these small spaces, these 10 minute videos and then let's talk about it. So. My question is, is how do you frame that up and become and get a consistent rhythm of that? Because yep. I see that is so true. Yeah. Especially with I'm 49, I see it. I'm becoming more like that. Right. Definitely the younger generation as well. Yeah. So we're gonna come back at one o'clock. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So no, 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 no. We're, no, it's gonna be super practical. The the last session is it, it's gonna be a model of discipleship. How to make disciples right here. Thank you. Yep. And we're just gonna literally just unpack that. Yes, ma'am. Depth. So, are you saying that social space really is social, and then at what point do you start bringing in, you know, like the, the missing piece that we're talking about? Like, that's so good. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. Like, where does that fit? Is social truly social, and it's just to get them further down the funnel? Yeah. That's so good. Wonderful question. So, one of the things she asked the question of when we talk about social spaces, is it truly just social, or is there some, you know, bait and switch there? Right is essentially I reframe that question, but but that's what she's asking. Um, um, it's a great question, and and it addresses something that we need to stop doing. Everything in life is theological. Everything. Everything in life is theological. Discipleship is not a destination. Discipleship is a direction. And we're going in one of two directions, either towards King Jesus or away from King Jesus. No one is in neutral. So when we talk about these social spaces, yes, it is primarily a social space, but yes, there is theological undergirdings. Why? Because God was a social God. God is the OG of small groups. He's the first small group. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit lived in a social space together. Man has a need for community. So even if we're just gathering to watch a football game or to throw axes 
or I don't know, again, your theological disposition. Maybe it's Oktoberfest and you're at the local pub tasting the, the, the local fare. There is something spiritual and theological behind that if it's just community. I never leave it at that. I always introduce some theological principle. But I'm not looking to go deep into it right there. I'm just looking to, to, to get them to taste it. And I'll give you a great example of this. I do this with my children. So I'm an old school catechism guy. So at my house, we wrote a family catechism. We have the Harper family catechism. These are questions and answers my kids memorize from the time they're two years old. They have no idea what they mean. But if you ask my three-year-old, if my three-year-old walked in right now and you said, Calvin, why did God make you strong? He'll go to help the weak. Calvin, why did God make you rich? He'll go to help the poor. Calvin, why did God make you smart and capable? He'll go to bring him glory. He has no idea what that means. But one day he will. And he'll remember that. So my son, who's now nine, he's been saying that for seven years. I went and picked him up from gym class a couple of weeks ago, and the gym teacher comes out. She meets me at the truck, and she says, hey, Mr. Harper, I need to talk to you about Malachi. And I thought, oh, Lord. <laughs> he's just like his daddy. She said, we were doing the three-legged race in gym today. And there was a kid. There was a kid in class who's kind of clumsy, kind of overweight. He's kind of awkward. Nobody ever really partners with him. A lot of times the kids will make fun of him. He really couldn't get the three-legged race. She said, I watched Malachi unprompted walk over to that kid, put his arm around him and said, hey, I'll be your three-legged race partner. She goes, I just want you to know that moved me and touched me. and I wanted you to know that. What was the first thing that came to my mind? For seven years, he's been saying, God's made me strong to help the weak. Now, if I looked at my eight-year-old, nine-year-old son and said, hey, way to help that weak kid, he'd say, Dad, you're stupid. He ain't weak, <laughs> right? Those theological principles, those undergirdings, we just have to consistently put in front of men. And we start again. You, you may say, Chris, you're putting the bar too low. Well, I don't know. How's it working out for you? That's what I would say. We have to, we have to start somewhere. Just these social spaces, giving it to them a little bit and just reinforcing it and reinforcing it and reinforcing it. And eventually we trust the Holy Spirit to make it click. We trust the Holy Spirit to make it click. Questions? That was a great one. Thank you for that. Yes, largely social, but never, never neglect an opportunity to speak spiritual truths. We have time for two more questions. You talked a, a bit about um, not just castrating the beast in men, but learning to tame uh, it and control it. So what does that look like uh, for you as a father of young boys? Oh, so good, man. What does it look like as a father of young boys to help to help bring out that monster inside of them? This is this is secular science. Secular science. Take away the sacred for a minute. This is Harvard Review Secular Science. Boys, young boys who have fathers that wrestle with them when they are little are less prone to be abusive and violent when they are older. Every day when I walk home and I walk through that door, my three-year-old, I'll walk in and he goes, Dad, fight you. <laughs> Every day. Dad, fight you, he says. I said, yeah, son, let's fight. And it's on in my living room. I mean, it's WWE coming off the top, couch, elbows. It's nuts. Right? I let them be boys. You know what I don't, you know what else I don't let them do? I don't let them hit their sister. They touch their sister, I touch them. I don't let them do that. Right? So I let my children be who God's created my children to be. And I don't, I don't stifle that. That's something super, super simple. But I also to remind them, I'm reminding them of the principles of what a man is. And it's, it's never too early to start teaching your kids that. It's never too early. Right? Tremendous question. Cultivate that. I told you guys, I'm not a manly man. I am. I'm a little bit like metrosexual kind of, kind of, I don't like camping and things of that nature. 
So my son turned nine, and I wanted to have a I wanted to have a milestone moment with him. So I've got some friends that run a ranch up in Montana, and they do a gap year program for college students. And I said, "Hey, man, I'm thinking about coming up, thinking about bringing my son." And my buddy that owns the ranch says, um, "Man, you you've timed it just right. We're getting ready to canoe the Missouri River." And we're going to canoe where Lewis and Clark canoed. And every night we're going to stop where they stopped and we're going to read from their journal. We'd love to have you come with us. I said, man, can I bring my son? Like, can a a nine-year-old do that? They're like, absolutely. It was the worst eight days of my life. I'm out buying camping gear and like new gear, like stuff I don't even know how to use. (laughs) We backpack six hours in. There's no cell service. There's no food. I mean, what you bring in is what you got. I'm staying alive off granola bars and beef jerky that my wife packed me just so she knew I wouldn't die. (laughs) It was hands down the best experience I've shared up until this point in my life. For my son to be able to do that, it snowed twice. There was one night that I was seriously concerned. It's getting cold. And he took that like an absolute champ. And he, to this day, he still talks about that. He still talks about that, that time on the river. We canoed the Missouri River. The canoe's going this way. Now, in full disclosure, a couple times we couldn't get it going in the right direction, so we grabbed onto a motorboat that was there. But, but just providing that opportunity, that space, right? And again, against my nature, against what I want. I shouldn't say nature, against what I want, right? Give me, man, give me a, a, a hotel anytime, right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Father of two young girls. I'll flip it, but it, it'll apply to both. As father, okay, my, and my brother asked me this earlier too. He talked about, I talked about the family of God versus the kingdom of God last time. I'm a big kingdom of God proponent because I'm a Puritan. I'm a Puritan scholar, so I follow the Puritans, right? The Puritans were the one. It was Luther who first said the home is a mini kingdom that reflects the kingdom of God, and in the home, dad is king. It was then the Puritans who came along and said the father is the chief priest of his home. So to answer your question, whether I have daughters or sons, I am the chief priest, the chief prophet, and I am the king of my home. We go to a church, but make no mistake, I am my wife's pastor. Make no mistake, my children go to a youth ministry, but I am my child's pastor. No questions asked. You ask my children, they'll say, oh, my daddy's my pastor. I am the chief priest, prophet, and king of my home. I am the chief pastor of my home. Doing that, when I say chief priest, I'm the one that goes before God on behalf of my family. So I'm praying for my family just like Job did. Job said, Lord, I don't know what my kids did last night. It might have been good. It might have been bad, but I'm laying this sacrifice out before you. So I'm going to God on behalf of my family. I'm I'm leading my family to God. I lead in worship. I lead in prayer. I lead in devotionals. Not my wife. I do. I'm the chief priest of my home. Now, my wife helps in that. My wife teaches our kids. We co-op, homeschool, that sort of thing. She's teaching them Bible, memorization, all that stuff. My wife is instrumental. Without her, I would be nothing. She is the best thing God has ever done for me. But make no mistake, I lead my family into the presence of God. As chief prophet of my home, I am God's mouthpiece. I am speaking to my family on behalf of God. I am teaching my kids scripture. And I'm doing that every day through a myriad of ways, whether it's a family catechism, whether it's a family devotional, whether it's just in the truck, and we're talking about this, but I am taking the lead in that. And then as king of my home, I am the steward of my home. I am guarding tooth and nail what comes into my home and what comes on my children's devices and things of that nature. I am the chief steward of my home. I guard what's on the television. I guard what my children are listening to. I guard what they are taking in because I am there to protect them and to serve them. To serve them. There's a, great, there's a great story when it gets into um, the Queen of Sheba wants to visit Solomon. 
I think it's chapter and verse is, is I think it's maybe eight, verse seven. She, she gets to Solomon and she says, even half of what I heard isn't true. And then there's a little verse that's so amazing. She says, even those who are under your command are happy. Even those who are under your command are happy. It's amazing that when men, when fathers, when husbands step up and are good leaders of their home, how peace and happiness come to the home. Do you know how many men come to me and tell me my wife's a train wreck, my kids are a train wreck, and nine out of ten times it's because they're a bad leader? It's because they don't know how to lead well. I'm not saying it's every time. Some things are out of our control. I get it. But man, I love this thought. Sheba says, even those under your authority are happy. And my wife, my family, my home is peaceful and happy because they're under good leadership. And that leadership is based on serving them. Dallas Willard, the best definition of love I ever heard, love is having someone else's best interest at heart. The best interest of my children, the best interest of my wife is my first priority as I serve them and love them. But that's how I would answer that question. With my daughter specifically, I do date nights once a month. We just did one before we came here where I talk about what she should be. She's getting older now with boys and things of that nature, so I talk about what to look for, right? You can't get no, tell her all the time, you can't get a racehorse out of a mule. You want a racehorse, two racehorses got to come together, right? I'm having these conversations with her. Right? Every when she turns 7, when she turns 14, when she turns 21, I take her on a trip. Right? When she turned 7, she wanted to go to the American Girl doll store in New York City and ice skate at Central Park. So that's what we did for 2 days. Had to save for it for 6 months, but I did it. And that's what we did. When she turns 14, we'll go somewhere. And when she turns 21, we'll go somewhere, right? So I, I, I look for these moments, but I also specifically schedule these milestones that I celebrate with them. But, but great question. That's a whole nother. One, one year, I'll come back and do a whole track on that, on family discipleship, because it's so important today. Anything else before we wrap up? Yes, sir. Oh, I mean, like you, you, did you thumbs up? And I love that. Yes, sir. What would you say to someone who... Is hearing what you're saying, which I agree with, but would say, oh, he's a benevolent dictator. Yeah, sure. In your, in your home. I would say I am. Yeah. I would say I am. Because when King Jesus comes knocking on my door, he's not going to say, let me talk to your wife. He's not going to say, let me talk to your nanny. He's not going to say, let me talk to your youth pastor. Bring your youth pastor over here, Chris, and let's have a discussion with him. He's going to say, no, I want to talk to the man of the house, and you need to come right here and talk to me. So when King Jesus comes knocking on my door, I'm going to answer. And I'm going to be responsible for what goes on inside of my home. Yeah. Benevolent dictator, that's okay. I've been called that. I've had churches disinvite me because of those things. And that's okay. But make no mistake, I am the king of my home. The authority given to me by God. By God. I believe that is scriptural. But I also believe the greatest king ever, the way he served his kingdom was by washing people's feet. Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? The way he exhorted his authority and control was by service, service to the point of giving his life on a cross, man. If I could lay down my life for my wife and kids, man, I, oh, what an honor. And I'm striving to do that every day. Great question, brother. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Um, man, thank you for this lunch we're about to receive. Lord, I don't even know what it is, but I'm excited. Um, you, you promised to meet our needs, Lord, and, and most of the time, you're just not meeting our needs. You're giving us a feast, God. You're so good to us, Lord. So we're going to go. We're going to break bread. We're going to trust that uh, this food, we ask you to bless it to the nourishment of our bodies. We ask you the fellowship we share over the next, uh, at the end of this conference, the next three or four hours, bless it to the nourishment of our soul, Lord. I thank you for the men and women in this room, their thoughtful questions, the willingness to listen, Lord, even, even on some of the stuff we disagree on. That is, that is okay, God, because King Jesus, we want you to be exalted. And you use men, and you use women, and you use children to execute your purposes, God. I'm just thankful you've chosen to use us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.
This podcast is brought to you by discipleship.org. Make sure you check out our website and also sign up for your free account on our discipleship.org collective. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this episode. Next up, we got track session number four from Better Man, and I hope to see you on that episode. Have a great day. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far. I wanted to take just a second to tell you about the Discipleship.org Collective. It's an online community designed for disciples and disciple makers. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then you fit in one or both of those categories. And we made this website with your needs in mind. The website itself is super cool because it's like stepping into a virtual church building. There's a welcome center, an auditorium for main events, and even some classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective where we provide weekly webinars, we've got ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you and also your whole church. And don't mistake this for just a website, it's actually a community for disciple makers. Basic membership is free, but there's also a premium access option that includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So go to discipleship.org collective and sign up for your free membership today.